Does this sound familiar? There are teams of people in a business, many of whom have deep technical knowledge, but who also struggle with communication skills. The result is that important projects too often fail. Our guest today is an expert in project management who helps clients provide clarity through conversations. It's Clint Paget, CEO and president of Project Success Inc. and a Forbes Books featured author on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I help professionals and entire organizations to get the most out of their everyday business conversations, the ones that generate by far the most growth opportunities. I do that through consulting, training, and both virtual and in-person speaking. This episode is brought to you by my book, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business, published by Career Press. You can find it in paperback, Kindle, and audio versions wherever business books are sold. You can also find a free sample on my website, jimcard.com. In the book, you'll find a simple, practical guide for bringing together your message, your messengers, and management habits so that you can accelerate the growth of your business for all of the new conversations awaiting you and your team. If now is the right time to build everyone's effectiveness in everyday business conversations, and if you think you might need some help in that regard, and if you're open to a 15-minute introductory call, then email me at jim at jimcard.com or send a message via LinkedIn. I'll get back to you right away for scheduling. Today's guest has a different and valuable perspective on conversations. I mean, who would immediately think of a project management expert for communication guidance? Well, message managers, when I met Clint Paget a couple of years ago, I knew he wasn't your average product manager. Clint grew up in Orangeburg, South Carolina, working in several family businesses. He later joined the U.S. Navy and spent six years on an aircraft carrier as an electrician's mate. Those experiences taught him how to deal with people from very different walks of life. Clint went on to earn an electrical engineering degree from Georgia Tech and his MBA from Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. Clint joined his company, Project Success Incorporated, 26 years ago. Now, success in that type of job means helping tactical-minded people learn how to develop teams that can deliver big, important projects on time and on budget. As just one example, Clint's company has helped a certain global soft drink brand plan their partnership with the Olympics every year since 1992. Clint is the author of The Project Success Method and How Teams Triumph, is a Forbes speaker's thought leader and now host of a new podcast on Forbes Books Radio titled The Conversation. You'll want to pay particular attention when Clint differentiates between communication, a very general term, and conversation, which of course is far more specific, and how conversations make the difference so often in project success versus project failure. Without further ado, here is our conversation. Clint Paget, welcome to the Manager Message podcast, my friend. Great pleasure to be here, Jim. It's such an interesting combination in terms of your background and expertise. We talked a little bit about that in the intro, but if you could set the the picture for us a little bit in terms of the kinds of 
projects that you and your team and your business are working on for big clients, who's typically involved? Because it sounds like these are protracted, high stakes, complicated, expensive things. Do you tend to have people from finance and construction and operations and marketing and different geographies all mixed together typically? We do. The good thing is the process we use actually scales. So while it certainly works and is probably even more powerful than really complex situations like you just described, and we do really big, complex projects. We've worked on some of the largest buildings in New York's Times Square in the last couple of decades as the owners wrap on those big, large projects, construction projects. We work on the Olympics and FIFA World Cups for one of the major sponsors of those events. We work in Silicon Valley for a couple of clients doing semiconductor chip design projects. We work with people like Caterpillar and Adco on, on new product development projects. So really, the more complicated it is, maybe the more powerful it is. But it actually scales down. We've done startup projects. I think the, the litmus test for whether or not you want the rigor of project management is, does the deadline matter? If, if, the, if you miss the deadline, do you not get that promotion you were going for? Does your company not sell the product early like it wanted to? Do you lose money by doing so? Do you have to pay a fine now because you missed a regulatory item? Those are the things that really drive the whether the process is worth it or not, more so than just how complex it is. That's a great criterion, Clint. And I've read in your book, The Project Success Method, and you've talked about it a number of times, that it's time itself, the importance of time and deadlines that has so much to do with how important the project is and how important it is to get it right. But you also talk about how communication, and I guess more more precisely, conversations are such an important barometer of whether the project is likely to succeed or fail. So can you talk about the relationship of time, but also the importance of conversations to whether things happen the way that they need to happen in the business? Well, time is the most limited commodity we have. This past second is already gone. Can't get it back. So every day that you are wasting time on your project, the deadline, if it's not moving, you've lost that time and you can't get it back. So you have to be effective. And one of the ways of being effective is to make sure that the message that you're communicating as a leader is the same message that's being received by the troops, the people actually in the trenches doing the work. I have a new book coming out in, in towards the end of this year called How Teams Triumph. And I have a chapter in that book called Communicate Like a Person, Not an Emoji. And when I was doing the research for that chapter, it turns out that in my five decades on this earth, I had the wrong definition in my head for communication. I thought communication is what you and I are doing right now, but it's actually not the case. According to Webster, at least, the definition of communication is the act or process of using words, sounds, signs, or behaviors to express or exchange information or to express your ideas, thoughts, feelings, et cetera, to someone else. So what that means is if I communicate through an email message, through a text message, through a post on Jira or Slack or some other collaboration tool, that is meeting the definition of communication because I'm communicating my message to you. But we all know, we probably all played this game when we were kids called telephone. And if you've never played the game, let me describe it to you. Telephone is where there may be four or five or six of you all lined up and the first person whispers a secret to the second person. And then that person turns around and whispers that secret to the third person on down the line. And of course, the fun in that game is that what person number six says does not remotely match what person number one said in the first place. 
Right. Not even close. Not even close. And that's actually the fun of it, right? So how does that happen? Well, that happens because each individual communicates to the next person. And that next person hears the message through their filter, their life experiences, their biases, whether they're having a good day or a bad day that day, how they define a certain word. So they take that, they hear this message through their filter. It gets, I won't say mangled, but it certainly gets twisted a little bit. And then they communicate to the next person who hears it through their filter. So it's no surprise that what comes out of person number six is not remotely close to what person number one said. So how do we clean that up? Well, you clean that up if each person, when told the message, could turn back to the first person and say, wait a minute, how are you defining that word? When you say go left, do you mean go left like right now or at the McDonald's two blocks up? If each person is able to ask clarifying questions, i.e. have a conversation then the message gets clear in that person's head and they can communicate to the next person who can also ask questions. And therefore, the message that comes out of person number six is what person number one said, which leads back to the definition of conversation, which is an oral exchange of sentiments, observations, opinions, or ideas. It is a conversation. And that's what makes conversations more powerful than just one-way communications. So if time is a limited commodity for which we cannot get back, once it's gone, it's gone then you, of course, need to make sure that your message you're sending from, from I'll talk about it from a project perspective, but it, it doesn't have to be limited to that. It could be any, any message you want to get across as a leader to your team. You need to have a conversation to make sure that the message you are giving is the message that they are actually receiving. And by the way, Clint, you might not call some of these messages mangled. I do. I have a chapter in my book about the whole thing of mangled messages and how they occur and how to avoid them. So, And they can be very expensive. They can be expensive to projects, reputation, relationships inside and outside the company. So that can happen. It's interesting. You mentioned emoji. And there's so many of these less formal ways of communicating as you say, not full conversation. So it's an emoji, it's a text message, it's Slack. Uh, these days, a lot more Zoom meetings, virtual meetings. So is that you find that getting in the way? So because we're limited necessarily in the time that we're recording our conversation, we're limited in our ability to be in person or to have that fully human connection, just technically in the channel. Yeah. Do you find that that's making these things even harder and people and their interpretations of messages are, are more and more off base? Yeah. So I, I don't want people to think that I'm the old guy saying, get off my lawn when it comes to email and text messages, because that's not the case. I, I certainly leverage them a lot, but I use them as an adjunct or an addendum as the, as instead of the main way that I communicate with people. And that the reason I say that, you know, think about how many times you've sent an email and had the recipient of that email respond angrily because they took, they didn't, they read the tone wrong. They took it through their filter and they were having a bad day. And therefore they thought you meant something you never intended. Well, that won't happen if you're having a conversation with somebody, especially not if it's face to face, because you can see the, how they took it the wrong way. You can see the defensiveness of their posture change. You can see their arms crossed or their face flush. You can sense that and then move the conversation so into a safer place. Well, no, no, that's, that's not what I meant. Let me say it this way instead as opposed to having that person receive the email and then respond really negatively towards you and then you respond negatively back. So that's the challenge we have. I certainly want to use emails and text messages and like if this interview is over and I wanted to shoot you a message, that'd be perfectly fine. I don't need to pick up the phone and call you every single time. But if I wanted to make sure that you and I were on the same page, then I would want to pick up the phone or meet face-to-face -face or have a Zoom call. 
So I do think that even six months ago, we were all working, well, seven months ago now, and we were all working together face to face. This was a challenge because people would often want to send an email or, or post on Slack rather than walk down the hallway and stick their head in the office and say, hey, can we talk for a minute? For some reason, that's how we want, how many, how we operate. I mean, how many times have you picked up the phone and somebody says, oh, I was just going to leave a voicemail, which really translates into, I don't really want to talk to you. I just want to leave you a voicemail and I'm off yeah, the hook, I, right? I want to check the box for myself, but I don't want to, the risk of actually engaging you in conversation. Exactly. And so now that we're working remotely, of course, this whole scenario is exacerbated because we don't have the option necessarily of walking down the hallway. And I love the, the phrase you use because I use it all the time as well, this check of check the box. Because I often get asked, well, why do people why do people want to default to electronic communications rather than or you know text based rather than some other way? And I do believe that as human beings, we have this innate desire to want to check the box and get things off of our to do list. And the safest way that I know to do that is if I email it to you or text it to you or Slack it to you. What I'm really doing is I'm throwing it over the fence. I hope I never hear from you again, so I can take check the box off. But if I picked up the phone or walked down the hallway and said, hey, Jim, here's what I did. Is this what you wanted? I might very well learn that I'm not done and I have three more things I need to go do now. And so I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to throw it over the fence and hope Jim doesn't notice that it's there for a while. And I'm gone. I'll be off to the race and doing something else. Clint, you're touching on a number of things that probably feel all too familiar for our listeners. And I, but I'd like to pose a question this way, because we have a, a real mix of professionals and leaders and entrepreneurs uh, that listen to this podcast. So you and your company, you've been doing this for a while now, and projects or major initiatives in that world might be those that have very large capital investments, right? You're building a new distribution facility or overhauling a system, something like that. And yet, uh, I think the the more everyday kinds of things are also going to be really important at a smaller scale. So you're I'm just coming up with something off the top of my head. You're implementing new software. You're adding or modifying a location. A lot of people with their physical locations now for the business have to retrofit and you know do a lot of things that way as well. It's very important that they do that in a certain time frame and they use their resources well. So given that projects or initiatives can take a lot of different forms, but they're really important, I'm wondering in your experience, Clint, do you see some common blind spots, some common gaps, especially as it revolves around conversations that leaders tend to have about projects? And is it really so much about time and communication and in ways that, you know, having a big chart on the wall, <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't solve for. I think that one of the, the blind spots that I would say people have, we've touched on a, a little bit, but the blind spot, one that I see is that people assume everybody understands what the message is and, and how to go about doing it. We often, we often get parachuted into projects where there's chaos and our job is to help bring order from chaos. Maybe the project's been going on for four or five months by the time we get there. And the project managers, we say, well, here's our process. The first thing we need, we need to do is get everybody in a room together and we're going to make sure that everybody has a full understanding of the project. And we do that through a, something, a mechanism called a charter document. And the project manager almost always says, no, 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 we've been doing this for five months. People are very clear on what they need to go do. And my response always is, well, then give me 30 minutes just so that I can become clear. And we end up taking four hours because if there were 20 people in the room, there were 17 different versions or visions for the project, which is why it's in the ditch now. 
Yeah. So I think one blind spot is they assume that everybody understands. Another blind spot is they assume that nobody's overloaded, that they'll get the work done, which is probably not a good assumption going back to your, the fact that most of us live in a world of restricted resources. And the third thing that I think people don't, don't realize or misunderstand is they have this philosophy that the plan, once you build a plan, it's cast in stone and never changes. And yet nothing could be further from the truth. There are going to be things that come up along the way that disrupt the project. You know, we, you might have a factory that burns down or maybe your facilities out in California or on the West Coast where you can't get to the you can't get to your supplier now because of the fact that there's all the wildfires going on. Or maybe maybe you have to work in a face to face environment and you can't right now because of COVID. You know, these things are going to happen. I call them unknown unknowns. The things you don't know, you don't know, they come up and bite you and they're going to happen in almost every single project. What makes you successful is how you deal with those. And the way you deal with those is continuing to communicate, to have conversations about your project. Now, I want to make this broader than just, just a project team, but I'll put it in project management terminology because that's where I live. But the way we do that is by gathering your team back together every couple of weeks and saying, hey, we have our plan, which is great. But what actually happened over the last two weeks? What do we know today we didn't know two weeks ago? We need to go back and modify the plan. And I know you said you were going to take five days, but that's before you found out you had jury duty. So how did that affect your part of the plan, of the project or the plan? And so we, we actually make the corrections to the plan every couple of weeks, including addressing the catastrophes, the unknown unknowns. And then, of course, sometimes that blows the plan up. But then we reapply the deadline and we compress it back and we're going to hit that deadline before we leave the room that day. So we're having these conversations every week or every two weeks to get us back on track and keep us on track. So we can deal with these catastrophic issues. And I think that's a misunderstanding some people have, especially if you're a senior leader, maybe haven't done projects in a while, is you just assume, hey, the deadline we gave you is never going to move and there's nothing going to be able to change it. And that's always our goal is to make sure that doesn't change. But you do the way you ensure it doesn't change is by meeting early in the project and, and doing corrective things to address the issues as they arise. It's an interesting uh, element here that I'd like to dive into just a little bit more, Clint. You talked about the that oftentimes you and your team are coming in when something has already started, but it's gone awry. <laughs> There's a problem, which is probably why you got involved in this in the first place. That And there are those unknown unknowns. If, even if we don't know the, the specifics of it, during a project, if it goes on for any length of time, there will be disruptions. There will be things that weren't anticipated. Things are going to go wrong. People will retire. Someone's going to leave. Someone else new is going to come in who has to get up to speed. The budget will change. There will be, as you say, all the way from, from weather and fires to regulatory changes. Some things are going to come up. What would be your guidance to business leaders that have these things going on? What do you do for those types of disruptions? Is it coming back to the charter? Is it is it involve ongoing evaluation and dashboards with the project, some combination of things? How do you, for the those things that will inevitably come up, what's the plan to deal with them? Well, I think we're going to do it in the way that we were just kind of describing, where we're going to get the team back together, at least virtually, every couple of weeks and say, here's, here's what the plan was. So what's happened over the last two weeks that we didn't know about? We need to go add back into the plan now. How do we address it? Now, part of our job every time we do that is to 
So there's a term called slippage, which means that the project has been delayed because of something that we're doing differently than we had planned. And so maybe it's one of these catastrophic issues. Maybe maybe the facility was going to send us the parts we needed just burned to the ground out in Oregon. Didn't see that coming, could not have planned for that, never would have imagined that in a million years, but now it's happened to us. We're going to put that into the plans. What is our steps to recover from this? And then we're going to look at the deadline and say, again, as a team, is there a way that we can get this back? And sometimes the answer is yes, but we'd have to do X, Y, and Z thing. Or sometimes the answer is no. We are never going to be able to maintain that end date now because of the fact that factory burned down. We don't have access to those parts. Then another conversation has to come up between the internal project team and the customer that says, listen, you heard about the factory burning down. It's it's unrecoverable. We are now going to have a six-month delay to the project. Here's what it's going to look like. This is if we streamline it, it's five months, but the best we can do is five. Do you still want to do the project? Does it still make sense for us to do it or should we just kill it and reallocate these resources to other projects that have a better chance of being successful? So it's about having those conversations along the way, having a plan. You've got to have a plan that you're going to measure yourself against, but fully understanding that plan is going to change and to think that it won't is incorrect. Let's address one other big issue that I see a lot, and it has to do with sustaining the changes and the progress that you made and how you as an organization get smarter from the cumulative value of doing these projects and doing them well. I'll think of a what I see might be a typical example. There's a major initiative, a major project, and there is a new product or a new facility and everyone, in addition, maybe to doing some of their regular jobs are all into this and it finally gets done and whew, glad. We're so glad we got that one done and we need to move on to the to the other 10 big things that we have to do. But one of the things I, I note about you and your team, you've been working with a certain global soft drink brand for uh, since the 1990s in working with them and their, their Olympic sponsorships and their Olympic presence. So this is a long, long-standing relationship, big stakes, a lot of complexity. I presume that you and this certain client, who probably people can guess who they are, are learning something every single time and becoming better at working together and getting these projects. And they're going to be, you know, they're happening at far different parts of the world in far different circumstances every single time. So a bit of a two-part question. So you've seen this done well and your advice to company leaders. First, how do you help sustain the change? If you have a new initiative or project to keep people from just breathing the sigh of relief and saying, okay, so glad that's done. Let's go on to the next thing. And then other ways that becomes cumulative knowledge, tribal knowledge, processes and procedures that people internalize and they continue to get better and better at this as they go along. I know, complicated question, different layers here, but how do you keep this from being just a series of one-off projects that people are trying to move off their plate? We'll do it in two parts. The first part is going back to this specific client. They are so global. And because these projects are so disconnected from one country to the next, you know, they come along every two to four years, depending on which event you're looking at. And the team is local. So it's a different team every time. So what this client does is, is brilliant. They have a process called lessons learned. And what they do is they get together with, they bring the, the new event team together with the team that just finished. And they talk about what they would do differently, what problems they had, what could they could do to improve, if they were able to go back in time, what they would choose to do instead, and they pass that knowledge on. So that, that's how they handle it. 
but let's scale it down just a little bit to where most of us are going to live. And most of us, we probably have teams that are going to move it kind of the way you described it from project A to project B. And it's the same group of people. So it's not a brand new group. I think you still have to, you can have the sigh of relief, but understand to me, one of the last steps in your project plan needs to be to document the lessons learned and how does that affect the next planning session, the next project, the next, the next, the next initiative? How do we do that? So part of almost the part of the last project should be document lessons learned to communicate to the new team. And the first thing in the new team, their project plan ought to be review lessons learned and court before you even go into planning. So you can you can incorporate those learnings and those changes in the in the power of what you've learned to date. One thing that that we have to always watch for is you can give great information. It's how receptive the other party is to receiving it. That's the question. Even clients that I work with that do a good job of, you know, these reviews, these lesson learned reviews, sometimes the new party doesn't want to hear it. And it's, oh yeah, but it's different now. We're different here, or that won't be a problem for me. And we find, at least our experience has been that it often continues to be a problem. It's the we're different syndrome about it. It won't work here. We're different. We're unique. And while I'm sure each one of us is unique, we definitely, we're certain things that are still going to apply. People are still people. So you have to be willing to receive the feedback and be able to incorporate it. So Clint, those are great lessons, whether you do that organizationally or you're just basically building in that habit with the people so that you don't let the lessons diffuse into the ether someplace and, and you continue to get better as an organization with these really important initiatives. I'd like to talk a little bit about you and your evolution. As we mentioned in the in the introduction, you're an electrical engineer. You're in the Navy. You're a technical guy. You uh, went to Georgia Tech and later uh, you got your MBA from the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University, I might uh, say one more time. But you're a very practical guy. I know you as being you know very straightforward. You're not in a in an unkind way at all. But you're of a technical background. You work with technical experts and both within your company and and on the outside. And and your first book, which was really good and very popular, called The Project Success Method. Well, now you've got this new book coming out, How Teams Triumph. You're part of uh, Forbes Speakers, uh, Thought Leaders, and, and that whole world. You've got this Forbes Books radio podcast called The Conversation. How does this happen, Clint? How does a somewhat mild-mannered electrical engineer veteran who's working on the the details and the technical stuff and project plans have this high-level, very strategic view about conversations? It's interesting. The way that I grew up is, while it probably set me on the path that I'm on, I'm not sure I would recommend it to anybody. But So my dad was a serial entrepreneur in a little town in South Carolina. And we, I don't know, we had businesses left and right. He was always off to the next great thing. So I've been working since I was about six years old at a store, whether it was sweeping the floor, picking up trash in the parking lot, to eventually when I was big enough, pumping gas, checking oil, washing windows, then carrying the bags out to the cars. I mean, you just name it, I did it. And what that forced me to do, because I am very math-focused and math-centric, what that forced me to do was learn how to have conversations with people. And also, one of the things my dad taught me was, it doesn't matter what kind of people they are, what the socioeconomic class is, what their job title is. People are still people. You know, he had a very monetary way of looking at it, saying their, their money is all green. It all spends the same. I softened that up a bit because to me, people are people. And 
I like talking to people and I'll talk to the person washing the windows and have just as good a conversation as I will talking to the executive. And I'm able to do that now because of the background that I grew up in the first 18 years of my life, able to talk to pretty much anybody about pretty much anything. And then as an 18 year old punk kid, I got dropped in the Navy for six years. And now I'm outside of my, my bubble here in the South where I, everybody I knew was Southern. And now I'm dropped in and my best friend, my, my two best friends came from New Jersey and Connecticut. I mean, people that are not what I, you know, definitely not Southern by any stretch. Right. So you, you learn to, at least I learned to be able to adapt and talk to different people about different things. And one of the things I noticed when I got to college was I was around some really brilliant people in my electrical engineering classes because Georgia Tech is, of course, very highly regarded. and It's a tough school. And I was around some really brilliant people. And I'm, the anecdote I like to tell is I basically you might be smarter than me, but you're not going to outwork me. So I would open the library on Monday and close it on Monday night. I would only leave the library to go to class. And I and it did the same thing on Sunday. So Saturday was like my Friday night, Saturday were my days off. And yet, even as hard as I studied, there were like two or three people every time they got better grades than me. And at first it bothered me. And then I realized that I had a date that weekend and they didn't. And I was like, I'm okay with this. So <laughs> I'll take that. And that's your own uh, successful project there. Exactly. I'll take those five points and have a date instead. So that's kind of how I got to, to doing what I'm, you know, kind of my background at least. And then I worked for Coca-Cola when I was in college and shortly thereafter, and I learned about the company that I now run called Project Success. They were doing some work for us. And I really wanted to work on the Olympic project. So I left Coke on a Friday, came back there on a Monday as a contractor, but as, a, as an employee of Project Success and able to go work on the Olympics. And that's kind of how I got into that. And even though I don't use my electrical engineering degree anymore, I'm actually quite happy doing what I do for a living, helping teams and helping people come together. And I think that one of the things I've learned it's kind of the, the focal point of what I talk about and, and really focus of, focus of our courses is that in a project work, there's, there's really two pieces. And everybody wants to talk about the process side, right? The process side says activity A takes five days, followed by B, which takes 10 days, followed by C, which takes five days, project takes 20 days, which is great. But what they don't want to focus on because it's not easy is the fact that Joe does A, Jill does B, and your friend does C. And those are three very different people who are motivated in three very different ways. And oh, by the way, here at Acme Corporation, where I work, I don't, we were living in a matrix and I don't actually own the people on the project team. So I don't, I can't make them do the work, yet I'm going to be held accountable for delivering this project. So that's the first book was really more process based, a little bit of people side of it. But this book is really more about the people side. How do I deal with people? especially in a matrix, because if I want to be successful in a matrix, the only way that I'm going to be able to do that is that the people on the team hold themselves accountable. So what are the things that I need to do as a leader of that project or the leader of an organization or a group to make the people hold themselves accountable? I've got to, I've got to do, put some things in place where they have self-accountability, what we call mutual accountability amongst themselves. And that those are simple things you can do, like some of the three kind of some of our three key rules. One is the person whose name is assigned to the activity as the owner of it actually has to be in the room and say, that's my task. Because I live in the real world, man. And if, if Fred's not in the room and you assign Fred to that task and Fred doesn't even know he has it, he's not accountable to that task. The second thing you have to do from an accountability perspective is that only Fred, if he agrees to take on that task, only Fred can give me the duration. 
I don't care if Fred's boss is in the room. I'm looking at Fred for the duration because Fred knows how many projects are going on right now, which ones that he's got to get stuff done by Friday or he's probably going to lose his job. Only Fred knows that he can't work this weekend because he's got custody of the kids or he's got to take his kids to soccer practice or whatever those things are. So only he can give me a realistic duration. And then if, in addition to those two things, Fred could tell me, Clint, I can do that task in 10 days if Joe is finished with that task, Jill is finished with that task, and Suzanne is finished with that task. If those three things are done, then I can do my task 10 days from then. And so at that point, Fred owns that task. We've removed all the things that he can hide behind and say, well, I didn't say that. Now he has to own it. And that drives accountability down to the individual level. And I know there's always the bad team member. I've been lucky in my career. I haven't run into that many. Most people, I think, come to work every day wanting to do a good job and feel good about themselves when they leave. And their goal isn't to work as little as possible and get paid as much as possible. And because they hold themselves accountable, they want to deliver what they promised. And that's how you're going to win in project work in a matrix organization. That's so good and clear and practical. And for you message manager listeners, there are some things that really come shining through for all this is there's a false uh, dichotomy or false division I find oftentimes is that technical people, subject matter experts somehow can't be effective at management or they can't be effective in conversations inside and outside the business. Not necessarily true. And there are people who are trained in communication and others that are, they stumble in uh, in ways. So Clint, you've, uh, you've done a nice job of laying it out here for both large scale, small scale, real projects, real initiatives, the things that are most important for people in, in terms of moving their business forward. Let me give you just a moment here to um, also talk a little bit more about uh, your new book that's coming out and the podcast, The Conversation. So tell us about what you're doing there. You got it launched. You've already had some great guests and, and, a, and a big platform. So tell us a little bit about those and how our listeners can keep up with you and what you're doing. Sure. Well, the, the book will be available on Amazon later this year. Uh, we were actually, I was on the phone today with the publisher trying to decide the actual publication date because obviously the noise of the, it's supposed to be coming out in November, December, but then that's end of the year and you got the election and the coronavirus. So we may push oh, the- Oh, uh, no, wait. I, I'm trying to imagine this conversation. Yeah. Uh, you, the project uh, guru here, is talking with the publisher about that. Should we go back to our charter document here for the, uh, <laughs> uh, but please go forward. I'm just imagining that call, but uh, yeah, let us know about the, the book and the podcast. Yeah. So the book will be available on Amazon by the end of the year for at least pre-purchase. And then we're, it'll either be out for physical purchase in late December, or we may delay it to January just to get out, get out of the noise. It's called How Team Triumphs, Managing by Commitment, and it is coming out on Forbes Books. The podcast is called The Conversation with Clinton and Paget. In that, you're right. I have been really fortunate. They've gotten some fantastic guests so far. We've got uh, my first guest was Keith Ferrazzi, a New York Times bestseller of Never Eat Alone, Who's Got Your Back, and his newest book, Leading Without Authority. Then I had James Grinney, who four-time New York Times bestseller of Crucial Conversations and uh, three other books, who's fantastic to talk to. Just finished a conversation that will be out next week with John Katzenbach, who wrote the kind of seminal work on teamwork is the one I've been recommending for years. Of course, now I'm recommending my new book, but right? but his book was called The Wisdom of Teams, which is just fantastic. I've had Jenny Blake on for How Do You Pivot you know, in this world we're living in today. I've kind of tried to make it a mix of academics because I've had 
Allison Woodbrooks from Harvard Business School, along with who actually does a lot of psychology of conversation. And then I talked to Libby Sander from Bond University in Australia about Zoom fatigue and and how the environment you work in can actually affect your ability to be creative. And it's really interesting. We talked in that conversation a little bit about how you could be in a noisy work environment in an open kind of open space environment at your office and not be productive, yet go to Starbucks where it's maybe louder and yet be more productive. And we talk about why that stuff is. So the goal was really to kind of mix it up between three things, academics, authors or, that are doing kind of research in that area, and then also business people. So that's kind of where we're headed with that. Excellent. I can highly uh, recommend that. We'll put these links into our show description. And Clint, I want to I want to thank you again. Message manager listeners had an opportunity to to meet and be around Clint over the past couple of years, and just uh, so impressed about how he brings together that that technical side and that very granular real world part about getting stuff done, as well as this great understanding about conversations, communication, attribution, and, and all the, the soft underbelly, if you will, of uh, important projects, but it's so important for how they get done or don't get done. Clint, thank you so much again for joining us on the Manager Message Podcast. Jim, thanks for having me. But if I could leave your listeners with one thing as they take this away, something to think about is they did a study back in 1997 on U.S. News & World Report, and they asked the respondents, I'm going to give you some list of names, and I'd like for you to tell me, what do you think their chances of getting into heaven is? So the first person on the list was Bill Clinton. He got a 52% chance of getting into heaven, according to the people being surveyed. Hillary got 55%, so she got an extra 3% for putting up with Bill, I guess is how that worked. The survey was actually taken right before Princess Di passed away, unfortunately, but it was 60% for Princess Diana. Michael Jordan, 65%. His teammate, Dennis Rodman, 28%. Okay. <laughs> Oprah Winfrey, 66%. So that's the highest I've mentioned so far. So apparently you can indeed buy your way into heaven. <laughs> now, Mother Teresa, what percentage do you think the average person gave Mother Teresa for getting into heaven? Well, one would think that if anyone were really familiar with Mother Teresa, that that would be very close to 100%. Exactly. That's what I thought, too. I'm thinking it's got to be in the high 90s, right? Well, unfortunately, the answer was only 79%. So tough crowd, 79%. Now, one person scored higher than 79% at 87%. Who do you think that was? <laughs> well, Clint, you didn't. This is not a trick question, and you and I did not preview this before, but I would say themselves. Correct. The people <laughs> being surveyed. And so when you look at that, you, so I look at this on the outside and think, all right, so this person gives himself an 8% better chance of getting into heaven than Mother Teresa. And why would that be? And my belief is when I judge myself, I judge myself off of my intentions. I intended to get this done by Friday. It's not my fault that my boss puts too much on my plate. I put in my 50 hours this week. I worked more than I should have, and I still couldn't get it done. So I'm going to check the box in my mind, giving myself credit. But all other people see are the results. And we judge others on the results, not on their intentions. So as you leave this podcast and you go back into your daily life and you go back into your daily job, just, just remember that others are judging you off of the results, not off of the intentions. Clint Paget, thank you again for dropping that in. I am going to remember that data point for a long time. Excellent. <laughs> thank you again for joining us. Thanks, Jim. My pleasure. Thanks to you for joining us on the podcast, whether you are a returning message manager listener or this might be your first time in. 
This is a side project. My day job is as a consultant and speaker. So if you find it valuable, then I would really appreciate your five-star rating and review. That helps other professionals like you to find us. Even better, tell a friend directly. I hope you continue to find ideas for honing your message, growing your base of messengers, and growing your business. You can dig in more deeply by reading or listening to my book, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. You can find it wherever business books are sold, and you can even check out a free sampler on my website, jimcar.com. This is the time to get your team ready for their new everyday business conversations. You have several options for getting started. I have a free five-step, one-page guide for managing your growth message. That's available to you on the website, on LinkedIn. You may email me directly at jim at jimcar.com. My direct mobile number is also on the website. I'll give it to you now, 501-247-8257. So let's talk. I also have a number of message leadership and growth programs, which I deliver virtually and in person, so that you and everyone around your business can likewise be comfortable and effective in their customer conversations and in all of the ways that they will be happening in the coming months and years. Until next time, message managers, thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcarr.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.